Hi, this is Jonathan M.S. Pierce, a tippling philosopher. Reasonable doubts has been a rational revelation to me. Whether driving, mowing the lawn, or doing some DIY, it's been there, distracting me. In a hugely important way. The eventual four-piece came to represent four pieces of a philosophical jigsaw of a comforting picture of good friends who I've never met and don't really know. But that four-piece band synthesised perfectly. There was Dave, beating the drums, bashing out those forthright questions. Justin, whose silky bass lines laid the foundations of philosophical erudition. Dr. Professor Luke Galen, whose psychedelic hooks, rhythms and melodies gave randomised, double-blind-tested, reason-drug-induced clarity to such religious nonsense. And uh, Jeremy the lead vocalist who brought it all together with finesse, helping out with whichever instrument came to hand. It had the perfect mix. Not just what people believe and have believed, but how it is irrational and why people believe it. This triangulation is what the geometry of atheism has for me, for years, rested so solidly on. Of course, you could have sacrificed your own well-being for the greater good, right? I mean, that's what Jesus did, and the fat man on the bridge would surely have done himself anyway. Then the rest of us would continue being happy. But no, you had to consider yourselves and your families. Well, I hope you're happy. No, really, I hope you're happy. And go on to the successes you all deserve. Thanks for your service to critical thinking and the analysis of nonsense. I now know why intelligent people can remain believing ridiculous things. I'll chalk up my own shit list now and cry myself to sleep. Forever on my props list, guys. Thanks for everything. Hello, Doubtcasters. This is Steve from the northeast of England. Hi, Doubtcasters. I'm very sorry my name is Aaron McCrory, and I was I raised a Christian fundamentalist. Hey, Doubtcasters. This is Sean from Jacksonville, Florida. Thank you so much for all the years that you've done. Hi, my name is Martin, and I owe a huge debt of gratitude. Hey, guys. Uh, it's Melissa from Ocean Springs. Hey, guys. Long-time listener, first-time caller. My name is Paul, and I've been over This is Ray Ivey My name is John. Yo, 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 it's Jeremy. No, okay, here we go. All right, Jeremy being on WPRR, rocking you like a hurricane. I'm between uh, 24 and 12. 24 and 12, baby. All right, and... I just had a vision of Jeremy as a Howard Stern type DJ with the headphones on and insulting people and bringing strippers in the into the studio. What is your view on epistemology, Candy? Yes, okay, I'm talking. And in fact, I think I'm going to be talking with an Irish accent because uh, I want the listeners to be able to differentiate between the three of us. So, you know, I'll be talking like this. So You're a fucking idiot. No, you're a fucking yeah, idiot. Eh, go feck yourself, go you fuck shite. yourself. Now, don't you be trying to do the <laughs> Irish accent, Luke. Aye. You're going to derail David's plan. This is going to cause I'm all gonna, sorts of trouble here. Just like I'm going to tell a joke as Dave, as Bono. <laughs> Every time I clap my hands, a child dies. What's that fucking clapping then? <laughs> I love that joke. I'll do this episode as Al Pacino. Oh, boy. I can't do... Oh, oh boy. Hoo-ha. Hoo-ha. No, he does it wrong. Ooh-ha.
Well, I can do it as as Jimmy Stewart. Well, well, but, but, but why would you want to do that? I, I mean, he's he's a, he's a six foot he, uh, rabbit. He's, he's in Jeremy's house, and and, we're, and we're, he's we're, in we're. in Jeff's house, and everybody come over to the window. <laughs> We're going to suck the life out of these impressions. We're going to suck them till they're dry. I, I grew up in Turkey. Um, <laughs> he does kind of talk. speak eight languages. Um, That's kind of the curse of the academic. Yeah, I guess so, Luke. Mm. I, uh, <laughs> I speak eight languages, but none of them with any assertitude. Three I'll of have... them are Klingon variations. <laughs> <laughs> I translated the Bible into Klingon. Was my dissertation. Doch, doch. Doch, doch. Jesus Christoch. Doch. Oh, that's beautiful. What was that? Uh, that's the 23rd Psalm in Klingon. <laughs> I think we should do a show on atheist existentialism called As Good As It Gets. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the clasp on America's Bible bra. You can find us online at doubtcast.org or at freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hey, how's it going? I like that you went with the classic clasp in the Bible bra. Right? That was was Bringing it back to to basics. Uh, Of course, Mr. Justin Schieber. Hello. And as always... The one and only Dr. Professor Luke Galen. I'm still alive. Still alive. He's Luke got a Galen. new. He's got a nice new uh, headwear there. Nice yeah. New glasses. New glasses. Yeah. You've never seen Luke, but because <laughs> he refuses to show up in <laughs> that, pictures, and he's brought true. some graphs. But which, if you could, really nice. yeah, if you could, you'd be impressed at his new uh, his new glasses. <laughs> yeah. You're like got the Rick Perry thing, man. You, you see look, so much now that so I, much smarter. My God, there's characters here and things to read. Well, it's been a while. Um, I think we we could say it's been God six months, maybe more, since we've actually been in the studio. Yeah, I think so. I think it was February or January. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. Um, it has been a uh, busy time for all of us. Uh, Luke will talk about the book he has coming out very soon, and um, we'll talk about more of that later. Um, I did want to mention. A couple of news stories that have happened in the time we've been off. Folks, since last time we recorded, we now live in a country where gay marriage is legal. Mm-hmm. Across yeah. the board. Every state. I think that's in the span of time that we've been doing this show, mm. uh, what, seven or eight years now? That's got to be the coolest thing that has actually changed in our culture. If you would have told me when we started this podcast that – Gay marriage was going to be legalized by the end of the time uh, we were finishing the podcast. <laughs> I would have said, "Jesus Christ, how many decades are we going to be doing this show?" Right. <laughs> but yeah, wow, what sh- what a huge change! And uh, it's and- really nice to know that we made a difference. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, all thanks. You can send them this way. Yeah. Right? Uh, People, the fight isn't over. Next, it has to be atheists can get married. <laughs> Is that still they, um, they can do that? Or- I- I think so. Not in Kentucky. 
Although I think I did say early on in the show that if gay marriage becomes legal, that I, I will have to leave my wife and marry a dude. So, uh, Jeremy, I'm asking if you'll join me in this and leave your wife and the two of us will get married. And Jeremy's already no, married. I, I don't know, man. Yeah, it sounds like sounds like you're arguing for uh, – I'm right here, Dave. Oh, right. Oh, well, I mean – For multiple marriages. Yeah. Look, Actually, that was going to be my follow-up. Gay marriage was, is the destruction yeah. of traditional marriage. They've always marriage, said it would lead so. to – that's what I thought Luke was going to say. He was going to, well, we got to go on to the next battle, legalizing uh, bestiality and the arc of history curves towards yes. bestiality. Uh, <laughs> is, that what, is that how the quote goes? I, I, the arc of history is long and bends towards bestiality. <laughs> when I can marry my cat, then we'll. But we'll I, I can honestly say we are we are finishing this show and. Spoilers, folks. This is uh, the last one, at least. Yeah, yeah. We should probably should say that. formally um, mention that at some point. <laughs> yeah. You, you know what, though? When we started the show, episode one, if you go back and listen to it, mm. we did absolutely nothing to introduce ourselves nope. or the show. Nope. We just went like, "Hey, here's the news, and we're going to comment on and it." That was actually, here's some new segments. If I recall correctly, that was intentional. Yeah, it, it that was, was. It was definitely a let's just you know. Get into it as opposed to doing the horrid, let's introduce ourselves and why you, you should care what we say rather yeah. than just saying what we're saying. And if you care and – and uh, We waited until people asked like, um, who <laughs> are you guys? <laughs> and then we, we were like, oh, maybe we should mention And that, that was when we uh, – So we it is – it's – I don't know. It's Full weird. Circle. It's Yeah, it's kind of appropriate book ending to yeah. do the last show with just like, oh, yeah, by the way, we're not doing this evermore. But yes, of course. We'll, we'll do more of that talk at the end. In the meantime, we're not going to uh, let you down without some of our greatest hits. We're going to end with – one last counter-apologetics leveled at William Lane Craig, our Woo-hoo. old buddy. Uh, some God Things Like You and, of course, a polyatheism. But uh, let's start with the counter-apologetics, shall we? This is Ray Ivey in Hollywood. 9-11 radicalized Sam Harris and prompted him to write his landmark book, The End of Faith. His books, along with the other popular books by Daniel Dennett, Richard Dawkins, and Christopher Hitchens, helped radicalize me. Reasonable Doubts sent my inner radical back to school. From presuppositionalism to determinism to Cahuan to the Quiverful movement, the podcast was an audio brain tonic that I just couldn't get enough of. My friend Dan Finca turned me on to the podcast when the God's Not Dead episode aired, and I was instantly smitten. Thanks to the magic of Bluetooth, Dave, Jeremy, Luke, and Justin became my constant driving companions as I spent most of 2014 blazing through the entire Reasonable Doubts archive. As a lay counter-apologist, I'll always be grateful to you guys for your fearless deep dives into chewy topics, your great expertise, your humor, and your relentlessly positive outlook about how critical thinking can lead us to a better world. Thanks, guys. Hi, Doubtcasters. I wanted to thank you all for the last eight years of great, uh, intelligent, and reasoned discussion. I really appreciate the work you've put into it, and I hope that we get a chance to hear a lot more from you guys individually or together very soon. Thanks again for all the great times. Good luck. Hello, Doubtcasters. This is Steve from the northeast of England. 
I'm very sorry to hear that you're stopping your podcast. I listened to every minute of it and I loved it. I've always been an atheist, but you guys made me think much more deeply about many, many things. I thank you for that, even if it does take a lot more time than coming up with knee-jerk reactions to things. Anyway, I will miss hearing a real scientist discussing real data in support of your ideas, and in particular, I'm going to miss listening to Jeremy going through his ideas in great detail and great care. Thank you all. I'm Jeremy Bearden. Today... Um, we're going to cover I'm Drunk. What? And hi. Either. And there's not a damn thing you can do about it. That'd be the B. Hitchens classroom. Today I got tenure and I got drunk. If I turn it down enough to where it's comfortable, I hear my inner voice, not my my microphone voice as well. We have medication for it, by the way. I'm Professor Bian. Today we're going to talk about Habakkuk. Habakkuk contains no information that anyone would ever want to know about. It neither predicts the Messiah, nor contains any relevant prophecy. He goes on about burnt offerings to your God and how to sacrifice your yak on every other Sunday. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. One thing when we were talking about the final episodes, every show I've ever liked, every series that I've ever liked has always done kind of like clips mm-hmm. or a review of a retrospective like of everything Seinfeld that they finale. previously did. Uh, yeah, <laughs> which was horrible. All of the, yeah. Which was yes. horrible, by yes. the way. Um, and so generally I don't like that. I don't like retrospectives. Mm. I think they kind of ruin these shows. We're not so special and grandiose that we deserve a retrospective. I, but... tried, to, I tried to choose a counter-apologetics for my last counter-apologetics here at Reasonable Doubts. I tried to choose one that would pick on my favorite target, William Lane Craig. Mm. That would build off of things that we had talked about in the past but would actually be saying something kind of new about them. And uh, uh, William Lane Craig kind of delivered this to me on a silver platter a couple <laughs> of months ago. So uh, for those of you that have listened to the show and paid attention, I know this is way back. But you might recall uh, a couple of episodes ago, we did a show called Youth of Froze Revenge. And the theme of it was – that the Euthyphro's dilemma uh, can be reformulated to counter some objections that are usually given to it. So, real quick recap: you know, I'm taking it for granted that everyone knows the Euthyphro's dilemma argument, right? If things are good because God says they're good, then God is kind of capricious and arbitrary. It's just might makes right. But if, on the other hand, God uh, commands things because they are good, then good must be some sort of external standard to God, and God isn't necessary for for morality, or morality exists outside of God. Listeners with the show are probably familiar with William Lane Craig and William Alston and a number of other apologists, uh, their, their critique of this. They believe that that is a false dilemma. And that you can split the horns of Euthyphro by uh, considering goodness to be actually an aspect of God's character, right? God just naturally is doing what is good. Goodness reduces down to God's character. It's not capricious and arbitrary because God cannot just 
command anything to happen. He, uh, his commands flow from his nature. Right. Mm-hmm. He couldn't, for example, tell uh, command you to murder and suddenly murder becomes good if it was previously evil. Uh, he couldn't tell you to do something that was morally wrong. And also, uh, God really isn't, if it's flowing from his nature, like Justin says, he doesn't have to hold up his his uh, actions to any kind of standard outside of himself. He doesn't need to be like, okay, you know, I'm going to do such and such. Let me go check the Platonic books on uh, on morality <laughs> and see if I'm matching up with perfect morality. He's doing what is good naturally by instinct. So this is supposed to split the horns of the Euthyphro dilemma and uh, – we talked about Jeremy Kuhn's recent essay where he takes that on, on Euthyphro's Revenge. And what was so brilliant about uh, Jeremy Kuhn's argument is he really didn't have to introduce much new in it. He was just pulling quotes from Alston and uh, others, kind of illustrating a quirky aspect of this view of divine morality. And that is, if this was the case, that what is good really flows from God's nature, God is the standard bearer of goodness. One weird consequence is in a possible world where God doesn't exist, then all the virtues of God, you know, whether it be justice, loving kindness, mercy, those sorts of things, all of those virtues are not actually virtues in a universe without God because none of those moral qualities are inherently, are intrinsically good in, in their own right. So this is strange. Because once again, if, if God is good by virtue of some quality that is a good-making quality, then we, we have to say that those qualities are independently good outside of God. And we're right back on the old Euthyphro dilemma. So what they have to say is that God is just good as is. He just is a kind of undifferentiated goodness. And it is his goodness. It's because he has these qualities like love and kindness and everything that makes those qualities good. He is good just because. God equals good. Kuhn said it best when he put it this way. What does it mean to say that God is good? It doesn't mean that he is just or loving. His goodness is prior to the goodness of these features. Alston and Adams must say this, else admit that there is a standard of goodness independent of God. So the property of goodness as it applies to God is an undifferentiated, featureless property. And that's really the key point. We've Mm -hmm. We've really emptied what goodness means mm-hmm. of any possible meaning, any possible content that can go in there. So you could say this this kind of new formulation of the Euthyphro's uh, dilemma makes God's holiness unintelligible. Mm-hmm. There's, there's nothing standing in for that concept. That's a recap of where we've been. We, we kind of had an inside track. We knew that William Lane Craig was going to be addressing this paper soon. He'd kind of ignored it for a while. But we knew an upcoming episode of the of Reasonable Faith podcast. Yeah, how, how long has this paper been out? When was it published? Do you remember? Uh, the Coons one? Yeah. I, I do not. Okay. I do not. Because I thought it was it's out been for like 10 years. years. Yeah. And only a couple months after you covered this on our show did he decide to get around to yeah, it. Yeah, suddenly, suddenly <clears throat> mentioned it. and uh, Once again, changing the world for the better. Gay <laughs> <laughs> okay, marriage. No, no but we, we, know, we know because of uh, the producer on the show told us. We know that he covered it because – he heard about it through us mm. or rather heard about it through somebody who heard about it right, through us. Right, of course. So that's that's nice. Uh, we got some tiny bit of like three-person removed engagement with William Lane <laughs> Craig at some point we should, we in should, the history of this podcast. We should end by saying hi to uh, William Lane Craig and <laughs> just uh, – 
we should have wrote a song and gone out on a song and danced. <laughs> hey, Bill, just wanted to call you. Hey, Bill. I think that's the best we're going to do, really. Uh, and we're out. Have you ever uh, seen Jeremy this, like, in a giddy mood, by the way? He's positively <laughs> gleeful like a child. It's, it's the steroids. Uh, <laughs> I, I just got off those two, actually. Man. Uh, they're fun. They huh? give you, yeah, real boost. Tiny yep. penis, but really get you moving. <laughs> well, it's, I think technically it's the testicles they shrink. It's the, oh, the tiny well penis then, is I here. shared way <laughs> Are we still much? talking about William Lane Craig? I, uh, <laughs> dear God. <laughs> anyway, William Lane Craig addressed Jeremy Kuhn's essay finally. Much to my surprise, I don't know why, but he basically agreed. That's what threw me for a loop Good. is he – he basically answered, I don't want to get into all the nitty-gritty, but we will post a link online to the article so you can read it for yourself and see William Lane Craig's position in his own words. But essentially his, his, his response was, yeah, OK, what's the big deal? So, so it's so unintelligible. So what? Uh, so Craig says on the podcast, let me say first, this is an interesting paper. Uh, and it, uh, he thought – he thinks it's, a, quote, a reasonable piece of philosophical work. He goes on to say, in fact, my general impression of the article is that it's not so much a refutation of Alston's theory as it is just an expression of incredulity about it. He draws out some of the implications of the theory and then just seems to say, this is unbelievable <laughs> and I just can't accept it and then rejects it. I think those implications are just fine and unproblematic, talking about Coons in his paper. Why does he think it's fine? Because <laughs> Coons is saying this completely undermines any intelligibility to the concept of God's goodness. Craig's case is this. To some degree, goodness will result, will reduce down to something that is primitive. I want to say arbitrary. He won't say arbitrary, but he says primitive. He says, the goodness of God is one of these primitives that really can't be defined. That's just another way of saying it's completely meaningless. Yeah, right. it's, it's, a so, it's a sort of primitive property or quality that can't be reductively defined in terms of anything else. And there are many other notions like that that philosophers would say are primitive or fundamental or foundational concepts. And he's totally right. So in that sense, he says, semantically you can't get beyond just affirming that something is good. Goodness is primitive, foundational, and ultimately undefinable property in terms of non-value terms. Okay, right there, I would think that's an earth-shattering admission yeah. coming from him, especially since William Lane Craig doesn't like to argue to a moral point of view from proving God. He likes to prove God from a moral point of view. Mm -hmm. He likes to say, because we have universal moral standards, therefore that establishes God. Right. And he likes to exploit our intuitions to that end. Mm -hmm. But our intuitions are that goodness actually has some meaning to it. Right, right. Yeah. So if our intuitions are supposed to be a guide, then it seems very strange to say then the ultimate foundation for yeah. this is just undefinable and non-reducible and empty. But here's what he says, and, and actually I kind of anticipated this one in our last episode. Here's why it doesn't bother Craig, why he doesn't think it's such a big deal. But that doesn't mean to say that God is good is therefore somehow meaningless. It is a meaningful claim. The theist is not offering a different definition of the word good. And he goes on to quote uh, Alston again as to why this can be meaningful. He says, uh, quoting uh, Alston, note that on this view we are not debarred from saying what is supremely good about God. God is not good qua bare particular or undifferentiated thisness. 
God is good by virtue of being loving, just, merciful, and no, so he's on. No, not. <laughs> you can't say that. Well, here's Craig's point. What we're, what we're doing is we're mixing up on ontology with semantics. Ontologically, this all just has to reduce down to a primitive. Mm-hmm. But semantically, we can still say what God's goodness is. Which is just the most of. trivial sense you could possibly <laughs> Right. I, I agree. But he's trying to say, you know, ultimately to put this in terms for the non philosopher people listening. Like as you know, long as the Craig words, is saying you yeah. know what love is, right? So God is loving, is so it's not completely empty to say that God is loving, because you know what love is like and you know what justice is. There is still some content that we can squeeze into this, even if ontologically the root, the foundation of this goodness is empty. We could still talk about the substance of what it means to be good. So, you know, when God died, when when God sent Jesus to die for your sins, he was acting in a loving way. You can you can use that as an instance. Here's maybe another way to put it would be, and I think Craig would agree with my usage here. One way is to say we have plenty of instances of God instantiating these moral qualities. We can see him acting good. We can see him acting just. And that should be good enough. That provides some meaning to this. So my objections. I love this because now finally on the last episode, I've been trying to do this for years, finally have Craig exactly where I want him. <laughs> on a side comment, I don't understand why an atheist couldn't just do this too if if we can just – well, we certainly if we can, can just yeah posit a meaning for goodness, mm-hmm. I don't see why a naturalist can't. And Richard Dawkins' is goodness. Oh no! no. <laughs> well, we, we still want a coherent. Oh, okay. Oh, I see. <laughs> Richard Dawkins' Twitter account. <laughs> My counter is to say, if God is the standard bearer of goodness, that is, we come to know what is good through Him. By conceding this argument, I think what he's done is now not only emptied God's goodness of meaning, he's emptied all virtues, all moral virtues mm-hmm. of their meaning too. So here's the short version of my argument. You've heard me try to struggle my way through this, articulating it several times on the show before. In the past year, I was writing for publication a uh, an essay uh, I'm now going to be turning into uh, an ebook, so that's going to be one of my projects after the podcast. Is I'm going to have a short ebook, about a hundred pages long, which I'm going to quote from right here. But it's called the Problem of Holiness. Uh, it's it's a simple argument, three premises. One, God's essential moral character is changeless. I think that's that's important, and it, mm-hmm. it's acknowledged by both general theists and Christian theists. God in every action is being loving. It's not like God is loving sometimes and, and just dick the rest yeah, of the yeah, time. Yeah, and just in other instances. Mm. Even when God is just, his actions are loving. It's loving justice. It, at no point are any of his moral virtues kind of suspended when he's when he's acting. Except for most of what he does in the Bible. But that's beside the point. <laughs> Premise two. If clear instances of a, of a moral property cannot be meaningfully distinguished from clear counter-instances of that moral property, the property in question has no intelligible meaning. So let me explain kind of what I, what I mean by this. Um, I think it would be too much to expect a perfect understanding of God's holiness, and I wouldn't want to set the bar too high. There could still be some mystery, and you could still have an intelligible concept. 
In fact, we, we kind of do this all the time, right? There are plenty of, uh, plenty of concepts we use meaningfully and to good effect uh, that we probably can't all give a complete list of necessary and sufficient conditions defining right. them. A classic example I think is, is a beard, right? I can look at Dave from across the room right now and say, Dave's got a beard. You know, There's no doubt in my mind that Dave's sporting a beard. And I can see people with clean-shaven baby faces and say they don't have a beard. Right. So I can distinguish instances of a beard from non-beardedness, even though where that crosses the line, how mm. much stubble counts as a beard is a very fuzzy thing to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. Pun intended. <laughs> Beards are fuzzy concepts. I like that. It was uh, cute. Thank <laughs> you. Beautiful. Thank you. Beautiful. Kind of got to honor our tradition of pun humor. <laughs> And I feel the same way about God, okay? It might be hard to give a total list of uh, God's moral qualities. Uh, and uh, I admit that there would be a lot of ambiguity, a lot of situations where we might have to express doubt. But if you could show me clear instances of love and contrast them with clear counter instances, you know, this is what a loving God would not do, I think you've done it. It's premise three, clear instances of God's moral properties cannot be meaningfully distinguished from clear counter instances of those moral properties. Mm -hmm. I think even when you set the bar this low, God cannot pass. So I want to I read a, a brief passage from my upcoming ebook, The Problem of Holiness, where I'm, I'm kind of explaining this in a little more detail. Longtime listeners of the show, you've heard this all before from me. That's kind of the recap aspect. You just haven't heard it put in a kind of concise, clear form uh, the way it is now. First, let us consider love and kindness these divine attributes. Clearly, divine love must surpass that of any fallen human, for in God's character, we witness the very essence of love in its fullest, most perfect form. But does God's love cohere with our ordinary understanding of what love is? The Bible says those who do not love cannot understand God because God is love. So there must be some continuity between the kind of love humans experience and that of God. In human terms, the love for one's spouse or children is one of the most powerful and selfless forms of love we will ever experience. It's no surprise that God's feelings towards humanity are often described in terms of a father's love for his children or for the bridegroom's love for his wife. We witness God protecting and providing for his children when they are in need. Uh, we see God healing the sick and forgiving transgressions. These are all clear examples of God's love in action. Most believers are confident that they have some understanding of what it means to say God is love from these passages, even if the fullness of God's love surpasses our understanding. The trouble comes when we try to identify which actions would violate God's kind of love. For if God was not unloving when commanding Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, as uh, J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig both insist, it stands to reason he was not unloving when he commanded the deaths of the Canaanite children either. God was not unloving when he inspired the psalmist to write about the joys of ripping open pregnant women's stomachs and dashing the heads of their infants on the stone. That just made me real hungry. I don't, I don't <laughs> know why. Anyway, uh, sorry. God was still the supreme exemplar of love when he commanded the annihilation of the Canaanites and the Amalekites. God was kind to a maximal degree when he laughed at those who cried out to be spared from his wrath and mocked their feelings of panic. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, I'm blah blahing my own book. I love <laughs> awesome. 
Because God is loving and kind and God's essential moral character is changeless, it follows that no act of God could be unloving or unkind. But if true, this would completely undermine our ordinary understanding of these equalities. Imagine a human father who cares for and feeds his children and patiently endures insults, forgiving them for breaking the rules. But there are also times when he starves, maims, mocks, tortures, enslaves, even kills his children. Now you are asked to pass judgment on this character. Would you conclude that this man is the world's most loving father? Of course not. Ordinarily, we would think that those are actions of a grotesquely hateful individual. But why? If God is the ground of all goodness and the standard by which love is measured. If consistent, we could not call this man unloving by his actions alone. We would not have sufficient information to render that judgment because ultimately every one of those deeds must be compatible with a perfectly loving character. We could only condemn him for violating a divine commandment by acting like God when he has not granted the authority to do so. That is his true crime, infringing on the prerogatives of God. It may be impossible to imagine any action that would be unloving in the ultimate sense if God is the standard bearer of love. And that's kind of what I go through through a good chunk of this of this ebook is going through other instances, talking about divine justice and divine fairness and trying to show there's nothing you could conceivably say is a counter instance. You know, the worst, most unjust things you can imagine we find in the scriptures God doing. Now, I know that's a very biblical-centric way of putting this, uh, and I no doubt uh, I think that people will challenge my interpretations of the scriptures and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. a more liberal b- believers, which I address and actually we've addressed several times on this show in things like our Summer Genocide series and uh, you know other episodes like that. But the thing is I think this works even for a uh, – this, this basic argument, the problem for holiness, works even for a kind of general theistic God. Because if you are considering uh, uh, God's moral character, it's going to be seen in his action, right? His creation and all these other things are supposed to give us insight into his moral character. And so the same kind of objections could apply. So enter in uh, the argument from gratuitous suffering. We can put that in this frame as well and say if that is – if allowing this gratuitous suffering is consistent with the supreme form of love – allowing all the terrible things that we see to happen in this world and th- and that's consistent with perfect justice and everything else you've emptied all these words love justice and everything else of meaning so ultimately i think craig is admitting the ontological foundation for morality cannot be defined but he's resting on will we still have some semantic content for what that means i think we don't actually if we if we closely examine those words Divine justice, divine mercy, none of these things can we put coherent meaning to. Yeah, I think his argument should stop being called the ontological foundations of morality and the argument just being – just saying you can't account for the semantics of goodness. <laughs> right. Like that's really what it's about at the end of the day. Uh, so I'll read one last uh, brief quote about why I think this argument is good and worth pursuing. Uh, it's pretty easy to counter. Premise three, clear instances of God's moral properties cannot be meaningfully distinguished from clear counter instances – all you have to do is provide clear counter instances. Just say, you know, this would be out of line for a loving being. I don't think you're going to be able to find too many instances of that or you're definitely not going to be able to build a robust sense of what loving or justice means 
in these contexts. But so uh, my last quote to why I think this is actually a pretty good approach to the problem of evil. Uh, Note that the problem of holiness does not presuppose any particular moral theory, divine command theory or otherwise. It doesn't claim that God is evil or that he ever acts immorally or that God represents anything less than a perfect standard of goodness. It assumes no fact about God is incompatible with traditional theism or any doctrine heretical to mainstream Christianity. It does not demand a reckoning of why evil exists in this world, nor does it force one to choose any horn of either the classic or updated forms of Euthyphro's dilemma, nor does the problem of holiness demand an unreasonably high standard for intelligibility. Quite the contrary, the problem of holiness lowers the threshold for intelligibility as far as it will go. It only requires that the quality have enough intellectual content to admit some knowledge of what each moral quality looks like in practice and what actions would contradict them. Even with the bar set so low, God cannot reach it. Needless to say, the consequences of this failure are devastating to any biblically-based conception of morality. Uh, To put the matter in personal terms for devout Christians, it means when you praise God for his holiness, you cannot possibly understand what you're saying. One might as well praise God for being the slithiest tove there is. Anyone who thinks they do have concrete, a concrete idea of what holiness means should be capable of answering the argument. So basically, in my, in my, in my view, the, the moral foundations of, of theism and Christianity in particular are just empty and meaningless. So I'm glad that uh, probably sub- settles that debate for all time sure. and that we can kind of wrap <laughs> that up before the end of the series. This is uh, why we, yeah. we have to stop here because yeah. really there's nothing else for us to say. I'm out. That's done. So, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for that. See you guys. Hi, Doubtcasters. My name is Erin McCrory, and I was raised a Christian fundamentalist. But in the back of my mind, I always had doubts. The Reasonable Doubts podcast is a big reason that I was able to confront those doubts and give a lot of evidence to um, support some of my doubts and eventually leave Christianity. And that has been a huge positive in my life in terms of my relationships and personal outlook and confidence. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for doing this podcast. I'm sorry to see you guys end, but I know that it's probably for the best in your own personal lives. And um, I really appreciate being a part of it. And best of luck to everything you do in the future. I'm Evan. The thing that stuck out most to me about Reasonable Doubts was the seriousness towards religious claims and actually critiquing them in a respectful manner instead of just gawking at the, as some atheists disrespectfully say, faith heads. Reasonable doubts also helped me personally. After deconverting, I was scared. Scared of us being alone in the universe. Scared of the hand of the Almighty not helping us. And scared of the eternal nothingness of death. Reasonable Doubts helped me get past that and made me feel okay with living for a numbered amount of days in this beautiful universe and being able to experience life. Jeremy, Dave, Teen Pop Sensation Justin Schieber, and Dr. Professor Luke Galen, thank you so much, and I wish the best for you all. 
Hi, my name is Martin, and I owe a huge debt of gratitude to everybody who's been involved with the Reasonable Doubts podcast over the years. The amount of effort that you've all put into this show is readily apparent. It's highly informative, educational, entertaining, and it's been a big part of my life for about four years now. You were instrumental in my transition out of religion. Through you, I learned that I wasn't alone in this area. I learned about the Center for Inquiry, Skeptics at the Pub. I learned that I wasn't the only one who had good reasons for no longer believing. If not for you, I wouldn't have a lot of the friends that I have today. So thank you so much for so many different reasons. One more news story that occurred to me that happened while we were away is uh, Pope Francis, who, not a bad pope, all things considered. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, Did you guys see this, where he forgave all women who had had abortions? Yeah, that was that was pretty no, nice. No, 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 no. He gave, or correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. he gave Catholics the authority, not just higher up Catholics, but all mm-hmm. Catholics the authority to grant Mercy oh, and to no, forgive. I didn't. I didn't see that. Isn't it for like a limited time I'm, only? Yeah, because it's the year of jubilee, right? Oh, really? Like yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Now, now it's, it's like in Dogma, where they like yes. everybody who walks under the arch for like one day yep. will get complete absolution. It's it's like that. Now, I thought it was great that he also extended that to God and forgave him for all of the miscarriages <laughs> that he had caused. So that was nice. You know. Yeah. That was great, and uh, hopefully, oh, you that's know, slithy toad. I, I just want to say though that the the Catholic Church now is more merciful than our public library because I haven't uh, gotten an amnesty day on my overdue fines in amen. like two decades. Amen. I can't walk in to a, uh, a library in this county. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yes. Oh yeah. I am. A major offender of late fines and all that. So not so, so much me, yeah. but my killing wife your and unborn child—you uh, yeah. know—an act worthy of hell is fine. Fine, but you're forgiven. Yeah, not returning those uh, John Denver CDs. Oh boy! <laughs> well, I'm I never mean, getting that off my account. I feel yeah. like I feel like that is a yeah. damnable offense, uh, <laughs> unless it's John Denver with the Muppets. Uh, speaking of which, uh, time now for my favorite Muppet, Doctor Professor Luke Galen. As long as you don't say "Speaking of which, John Denver." <laughs> no, of course. More respect. Hey guys, long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> I know that's going to be a, a joke that you hear a lot. Sorry, uh, but anyway, I wanted to, to thank you uh, for being a part of my life for the past eight years. It uh, was eight years ago that I started my graduate work in um, in geology. Uh, yeah, still going, but at least I'm I'm closer to a PhD now. Uh, but anyway, you guys have been um, really instrumental, and you were very instrumental. Uh, in a time in my life where I was transitioning from uh, from belief to non-belief. And by the time that I had started my graduate work, I was a non-believer, but your conversations and your podcast really hammered out the details of, uh, of my own belief and allowed me to do that and allowed me to, to construct uh, a model through which uh, I can live a fulfilled life, really. Um, and, and that's as a debt and I cannot repay you. And while this isn't really goodbye, I know you guys are going to be going on to, to other things. It's a goodbye as we've known you. The medium uh, through which you guys have, have really touched a lot of people. So thank you very, very much. Dave, Jeremy, Luke, Justin, how do I say goodbye to you? You guys have been a big part of my life for the past several years. You didn't even know it. You changed the course of my life. 
set me on a new path with evidence and reason as my guides. Your voices were right there in my ear through good times and bad. As I struggled with the loss of my faith, you helped me through it all with your own testimonies and tales. For all that you've taught me, made me laugh, and for all the hours of enjoyment, a measly thanks is the best I can offer you. So as a wiser man than I once said, so long, and thanks for all the fish. Hey, Doubtcasters, this is Sean from Jacksonville, Florida. Thank you so much for all the years that you've done Reasonable Doubts. It's been such a, just a fantastic podcast uh, talking about uh, atheism, religion, in such a very level-headed, rational, uh, reasoned kind of way that is really refreshing and kind of, kind of grounds our lack of belief. And uh, definitely super appreciative to you, Luke, uh, for your psychological viewpoints have been so helpful as a kind of a social worker and a student in psychology myself. So uh, thanks again. We're going to miss you all so very much and hope you all have wonderful futures ahead. Oof. Yeah, I was very upset at losing that one. But Luke would never know because he doesn't listen to the show. So he doesn't know. Well, he would especially not know the shows that weren't. For, for all Luke knows, the show has never actually been released ever. <laughs> he says he listens just his own bit. You guys think I don't make progress, but this week I downloaded <laughs> iTunes for the first time, and now I have iTunes, so I'm up iTunes? on things. I, I got iTunes. I know how it works, guys. I'm all about the iTunes. Where's this interference coming from? I don't hear anything. Well, you don't have headphones on. Uh, Luke. Why don't you move your chair just a little bit away from the wall? Move out to the parking lot, Luke. Yeah, perfect. Keep going back. 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 Further. You're, you're on wireless. It's fine. It's cold. <laughs> That's true. We it's ever so cold out here. I have my nose pressed up against the frosty pane, staring at the warmth inside the studio. Please, sir. I'm a member of the podcast. I'm ever hungry. Ever so hungry. Could you spare half a crown? Okay. I believe he's the one oh, with the doctorate. What were, what were we talking about? Have this is not going to make value. it on the air. I can tell you that. <laughs> fuck, 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 fuck. There, try editing that out. Well, fuck, Jeremy, fuck. That's an interesting fuck point. <laughs> fuck, fuck, fuck. Well, uh, yeah, and, and we Did take that Bible? as a skeptic Sunday I school. I did bring my Bible, so I'm prepared. Or is that your DSM? Huh? Your DSM-4? No. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh shit, I get him confused. <laughs> well, for me, that is the Bible. I, I so. know, I know. That's right. You're, you're a borderline. Yeah, how many, pages, how many pages talk about you and your personal life <laughs> in the DSM-4? All, all of them. <laughs> a lot more than the Bible, you, you though. You do your picture. daily devotions out of the <laughs> DSM-4. <laughs> Real or imagined persecution. Yeah, check. <laughs> <laughs> Difficulties with an unstable personal relationship. Check. Oh, uh, Oh, I'm sure you'll manage to to tamp down my comments, though. By the time they hits the mixable form, he's going to... We're actually just editing you out and gonna... putting in clips of the infidel guy in your place. Mm-hmm. They'll just have me inhaling, and then it'll be gone after that. <sighs> <laughs> well, in your case, it'd be sniffling. <laughs> Anybody who's paying close attention to the tracks is probably going to think that Luke is doing blow in the bathroom before <laughs> the podcast. It's allergies, man! <laughs> I think the fucking cops are out in their parking lot. I saw them. Allergies 12 months a year? Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's Something's not adding up. That's a tragic way to live. Are you allergic to cats? Mm, well, they're, my, all my clothes are inundated with them. So Right. So that would explain that. Well, I just have to live with it then. All right. Um, should we do Ted Haggard? I haven't heard about this, so... Are, are we done with... I'm going to with... sit my face on stun. <laughs> <laughs> me, me neither, actually. <laughs> Thank you.
So how do you how do you recap all these years of psychology and psychology of religion and science? You can't encapsulate that into one thing. No, you can't. Okay, well no let's more. move on then. Moving on. So well, we're gonna try to do it in song. <laughs> and one and two, like the Fifty States dum, song. Dum, you know? dum, dum, dum. <laughs> I bet they might be giants. Could actually do <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, so a boom, boom, boom. T- yeah, well, the listeners, some of the listeners, I get emails sometimes where they, it's actually kind of flattering because they let me know like, oh, they're following my projects outside the podcast. Like they can see stuff that I do, you know, posted. So some people might uh, have seen the special issue on atheism of the Science and Religion and Culture Journal that came out. It's an online journal. Mm-hmm. Some of our listeners might be familiar with other folks who do research on secularity and, and uh, non-religiousness uh, who have articles there. But one of mine takes on kind of the, a Pascal wager argument for God, you know, that beyond any philosophical proofs that it's good to believe in God because of benefits, to me that was a ripe target that needed to be taken down mm-hmm. uh, in regards to things like there aren't benefits. So, uh, who, who, who's the author of the paper that you were responding to? Mick Brayer. Okay. No? That's actually really funny because I just read that article. And I was like, "This is Galen." Oh, the McBrayer article, stuff right here. Yeah. Yes. So that was a. Uh, it was that. That was an impulse to send it in because I read the McBrayer article, thinking, "Oh, there's like it's a target-rich article," mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and but also there was a call for special papers on atheism. So I combined the two, and then so read, uh, listeners can go online to Science, Religion, and Culture Journal, and for free they can read. All those articles, they can read McBrayer as well as my critique. And special papers require special people. It's a special one. Yes. So it's called Atheism, <laughs> oh, Well-Being, and the, the Wagers. The <laughs> so that, that's one of my projects. Uh, another one is that um, I listeners would also recognize that I've been working on a book with some other well-known non-religious type secular researchers, Phil Zuckerman, the Society Without God guy. The guy, guy. who wrote and directed Airplane? Uh, that's a different one. That's no, Zucker. That's, this is yeah, Zucker. Oh, the founder of Facebook then. The Zucker brother. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? It's Him? a common Zuckerberg? German stem name. I'm sure it means sugar. Uh, anyway. Sugar home, right? Phil Zuckerman Zuckerberg? is okay. uh, well known. And so he and, and myself and then uh, Frank Pasquale have collaborated on a book that will be coming out early next year. I think February it said – through Oxford University Press. It's going to be called the, Ooh, the Oxford. Non- the same my, my, Oxford my. as the – they publish a lot though. Uh, a lot of trash. Yeah, a lot of good stuff. But um, it is, uh, it's going to be called The Non-Religious and it will be like it sounds, basically a summary of all the empirical stuff on non-religious people. So obviously it will cover things like morality and – well, mental and physical well-being and culture and all that stuff. And so. presumably you'll have all the charts for people that have been wanting to see them for They're all this time. They're pretty stingy about charts. Really? So you got to like – yeah, because it costs uh, extra money. So Oh, sure. So there won't be – you can draw your own if you want I guess. But. As a nod to the podcast, uh, you should just occasionally see like, – uh, have written in your paper like C figure something and that's like not actually there. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way to access it. I don't get it. Uh, I don't get what never, never. I, I love that he's still kind of blind to some of his <laughs> own quirks. I don't know what he's referring uh, to. So yes, so if, awesome. if listeners are interested in like a one-stop shop for like empirical factual stuff, not to you know put a shameless plug in, but I'm plugging it shamelessly. Go get the book. <laughs> Please Pre- get it. Yeah, <laughs> you can pre-order it now. Oh, is it available for pre-order? Oh, you already? can. You can pre-order um, it already. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it is. Well. Keep your eye out. We're going to find out. We'll have a link on the episode if you can. You might as well try. Try to pre-order. 
Um, so that's another project that's sort of going to be coming to fruition. Uh, I also there'll be a um, another book thing is there's an encyclopedia of secular I think it's secularity or secularism by also edited by Phil Zuckerman and uh, John Shook. Some people might know from CF5. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are editing one, and I they have asked me to do a chapter on my usual shtick on um, cool. pro sociality and mental health and that. Nice. So it has other chapters from other you know, uh, authors that people might be familiar with. But I guess that leads to things that I'm interested in in the future. What I try to do in this chapter was also do what I do on the podcast, and that is show how a lot of stuff that's attributed to religion is simply reducible to secular psychological mm-hmm. sure. mechanisms. You know, mm-hmm. the things that make you moral don't need God stuff. The thing that makes that makes you happy don't doesn't need God stuff. So that chapter will be like the book, handbook on secularity. A lot of the stuff is just dumb old secular mechanisms that get dressed up as masqueraded as if it's you need religion to have mm-hmm. that, but you don't. Like from the podcast title, God Thinks Like You, I'm also continuing to plug away my own book on social cognition and religion to show that God, in fact, does think like you. And, and that's the title of the book? Uh, I want that to be the title. I'm hoping uh, nobody else has stolen that title because if there's anybody out there – You can't copyright a title. I think you can. Somebody yeah, – yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I just said that. <laughs> I just say things. It would be a perfect title. I'll find some way to like skirt copyright law if I need to. Well, just that give, that just was the last edition of Fletcher subtitle. Factor Fiction either, which used to be my favorite segment. Yeah. Did, would, did Dave – what he said, was that was authoritative that or mm. – Who knows? All derivative. Just, well, did that just know. pop into his head just now? Everybody that's tr- that does music or whatever, they always cop something from so yeah, I'm, I'm no different. Um, so he's remixing. Okay. And then finally, I think a lot of listeners, I'm also really gratified by the fact that I get I get email or they put comments on things showing that they really are interested in psychology of religion. I'm sure that the philosophy boys get their share, but for my take, a lot of people say things like, I've liked this segment because it's gotten me to you know want to go in more into things like news and psychology and understand religion from mm-hmm. – uh, a psychological perspective, and so there's been some developments that I would I want listeners to uh, you know sort of keep their eye on because I think it's interesting. Some of these things we've talked about on the show, but you guys might remember a lot of this stuff comes out on like the evolution of religion, uh, particularly that that religion evolves to make people play nice, like this big gods type theory that's out there now. Uh, that that's a that's a continuing goldmine for people to write about, but also to critique. In that, like I've done on the show, to, to suggest that there's other reasons to account for this notion of why societies seem to have scaled up uh, in relation to do they need gods to help them like play nice and get along and don't kill each other. On the show, we've talked about one of the big problems of that theory is that a lot of the stuff with religion doesn't promote generalized morality. It promotes very in-groupy type morality. Mm-hmm. So yes, that might make me get along with you guys or my tribe members because Yahweh's watching us, but Yahweh tells us to go slaughter the tribe over there. Right. So one of the big problems with this whole big gods theory that I've been harping on is it's all relative to in-group morality. And that and so when you talk about why do religions thrive with the development of culture, it doesn't really fit in with its cultural diversity because it would set culture upon culture once you get into a mixed heterogeneous environment. So there's been some interesting developments along those lines with people critiquing that type of theory. One, another one is is that society has scaled up just simply due to economic conditions. As soon as people get market economies, they have to trade with the people over there or in the next county. And that religion has piggybacked on economic 
integration. So there's a um, some people might remember Pascal Boyer. We've talked about his cognitive theories of religion on the show, but there's another paper with him and a guy named uh, Balmard that mm. talk about no, it's not that big gods le- led to civilization, but it's that economic development led to civilization and big gods. And that where you start to see things like monotheism rising up is when they've already made the transition to mm-hmm. market integration, mm-hmm. trading mm-hmm. with other people, economic development. Interesting. So anyway, that's that's a, a really a, a neat area that's where, where there's a lot of progress being made is looking at religion uh, kind of uh, cross-culturally and, and overdevelopment. And then another one is some people might remember there's been some articles published in things like New York Times and whatnot on psychology uh, as in a crisis in the field with replicability. Have you guys seen any of those? Or reproducibility, yeah. I guess would yeah. be another mm-hmm. word. Yep. That a lot of the studies that are snazzy that you read about like, oh, people have – the, one of the ones that made it onto like This American Life was the study on gay marriage opinion mm, yeah. where a guy claimed that if you come and talk to people and the canvassers talk to them and then say things like, you know, what are some of the things about gay marriage and like engage them in Socratic conversation that they can actually shape their opinions on gay marriage. Turns out that was fabricated. Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. it, The guy couldn't come up with a real – it looks like he doesn't really? even have the raw data. Oh, real? Like completely yeah. fabricated. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's – that's sort of led that, – that and other things have led other people in the field to go back to famous psychological experiments and then try to do them over again and often with – not a lot in terms of results. And you get different figures, but a lot of the studies show that only a minority of psychological you know, experiments, the ones that you see on like priming or you know, the, the stuff in laboratories, can be replicated even if they follow the same procedures as laid out in their methods section. And so that's why these articles are coming out with crisis in the field of psychology where yeah. now these people are scrambling to go out and then find studies and then – Reproduce them. Ordinarily, if you're reproducing work, it's not really yeah. publishable because who wants right. to be – if you're a journal, you want to publish something new. You don't mm-hmm. want to just publish like – we've been able to confirm that Smith's findings were correct. But now people are starting to do that and run around and find things to reproduce and see whether they hold up or not. And it's the same with the stuff that we've been talking about on things like priming and religion. Oh, or, that might work you know, out for you. Yes. So hmm. here's a little tidbit that uh, just came out actually or in, in press where – uh, this is by the authors here are Gomes and McCullough where they did a reproduction or a replication of the religious priming and that economic dictator game thing. Mm-hmm. So you might remember some of the original articles like Sharif and Noren Zayn where they gave people religious words, uh, religious words embedded in scrambled sentences to kind of activate in their mind mm-hmm. like, OK, religious ideas. And then they give them some money and say you can share however much you want with – this partner over there and then you see how generous the person is do they keep it all for themselves do they give more the original finding was that when you cause people to think about religion they're more generous they gave they split the money more equally or even better than equally to the other person mm-hmm. turns out that this study this came out on and they couldn't find or, or that what they found was that they didn't replicate as well wow huh. and that mm. led them to kind of tweak it and then do different things but long story short is is that as with other findings that don't hold up, there might be some in this area that I've been talking about with priming and religion or economic games and religion that once you do it, it doesn't actually hold up when you try to reproduce it. Wow. <laughs> and the theory with why that's why so many things are being overturned is uh, it's what's called the file drawer effect. Let's say that there's five, six different teams at any one time doing similar work. If yours works out, you send it to a journal because, oh, whoa, yeah. whoa, it Boom, worked. Done. 
new snazzy new finding. Yeah. If my work doesn't work out, I don't really publish the lack of finding. I just put right. it in my yes. file drawer. Right. Right. Oh, mm-hmm. darn, I'll do something else. The problem – and this is, by the way, this is not just in psychology. Most psychology people will say that like drug research or medical research <laughs> on uh, – you know, a lot of those things that like Pfizer shocking. or Eli Lilly, when they have something that yeah. doesn't work out, let's say you try an antidepressant with a different disorder and it doesn't work out, you just shove it in a file drawer. And so a lot of the things that you see about are, 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 are biased towards positive findings or, in other words, findings yeah. where the thing that you're doing worked out. And the ones that don't work out aren't published. And so right. it leads to this, this um, um, bias to where let's say that there are maybe some effect sizes that are valid. That is the priming works, the drug works, whatever. It's going to skew it if like a certain number of people where it works out, publish it, and a bunch of other people where it doesn't work out, sit on it, and then mm-hmm. it makes it look like it's a stronger effect mm-hmm. size. Yeah. So what's happening now in the field is that people are going back and saying we need to adjust for this file drawer effect or the fact that non-significant findings are sat on. And what, what people might want to you know, sit down and look forward is headlines on things like such and such study doesn't work out anymore or when you do it, you know, this way it doesn't so work. So we're it's, thinking like evolution is going to be overturned here, stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. 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 No, no some, there are some findings that, 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 that are fairly robust, but some of this experimental yeah. stuff, the stuff that catches your eye like, wow, they can do that in a laboratory is really twitchy. When it makes a real sexy headline, you always want to so, be very yeah, careful. About I, and this is what I tell my people in my class is that any one study is interesting and you should then put that over here and say, let's look at – try to get at it through different ways. And if it holds mm-hmm. up, that's great. Then we can talk about it. So you think meta studies are going to be more and more the, the way of the future? Meta studies and then doing things through different methods with different samples, mm-hmm. let's say. Oh, okay. Here's another thing that's, that listeners can look forward to and that is as society shifts more secular or non-religious. So you might have seen things like younger – you know, the younger cohort, the millennials, are less religious than their parents or mm-hmm. less religious than their parents. That, if that trend continues, a lot of the things on findings on religion and psychology are going to have to be reproduced to see if they still even hold up. Right. So we've talked before about how some of the studies done in, let's say, Europe or Germany where there's not, or Sweden where there's not as many religious people, they don't really hold up in terms of like mental health or personality and prosociality because it's a norm effect. Right. That is, it's one thing to be religious here – and you find these findings like they're happier or they're nicer or whatever like that. But if you don't find that or even the reverse in a secular country, what well, that means that has implications for when we become a secular, more secular country. Right, right. We might never be Sweden, but if let's say we crack the 30, 40 percent mark on people who are non-religious or just basically live their lives and don't care about God, mm-hmm. a lot of the findings that used to be true with religion are no longer going to be true of younger people. Right, right. So that's another in thing your pro-sociality paper, you were basically making the case that there were uh, a lot of these were pro-religious stereotypes at a culture-wide level. So yeah. if you erode that, yeah, so much else is going to fall. Well, fall they're not a they're it. not a religious effect; they're a normative effect. And right. whatever culture you happen to be in, if you're normative, it's good. Yeah. You know, let's say that you're in a small town and it's religious, and you're religious, you're going to be happier. You might be more pro-social; you'll fit in. But if you are in a non-religious town, you know, let's say you're over at the college town with a bunch of the godless people, that same effect might not be seen. So it's not really – people attribute that as an effect of religion, but it's effect of fitting in with your right. predominant culture. So, yeah, it's yeah. a numbers game essentially. Yep. So I would say, listeners, thanks a lot for the support and keep thinking psychologically. <laughs> <laughs> what the 
<laughs> Wait, that that's mean? a tautology. Uh, that's like okay, haters uh, are going to hate. Give me a counter instance of not thinking. <laughs> like I leave you on a tautology. Lovely. So, yeah, definitely, folks, keep your eyes out for um, those publications with – Dr. Professor Luke Galen's name attached to them because and don't uh, reproduce them. Don't try to replicate. Well, them. no, <laughs> certainly not. And if you don't have them, feel free to write his name on your on the ones yeah, you do own. Absolutely, no. It's an established good practice when dealing with views contrary to your own to seek out the best arguments, the considered, thoughtful, and weighty arguments that challenge and either produce a change or strengthen one's own position by their merit. This is why I, as a Christian, have appreciated the work of Reasonable Doubts. You have given me the best insight into the world of skepticism and have forced me to recognize and abandon the simplistic. There are numerous other sources available, but I would look to hear you first and have found myself disappointed to see the frequency of programs over the months dwindle and now reach this point where it comes to its end. But I look forward to hearing what lies in store for each of you and will honestly miss the weekly window into the obvious sincere friendships you shared amongst yourselves. Thanks, guys. My name is Paul. I hadn't really had any interest in podcasts before, but for whatever reason, I decided to listen to you, and I'm so glad I did. It's been a great ride of hilarious and horrifying and fascinating ideas. I was raised in a non-religious household. I have never had that inside perspective about what and how religious people really think. So your show has always been particularly useful and fascinating for me, hearing about counter-apologetics and people's experiences changing and leaving religions. I did sort of have a deconversion of a different kind, thanks to you. I had my mind totally changed on the free will issue. So that got me thinking hard about what implications that has for how laws could be changed, for example, to better fit with the evidence about real human decision-making processes. And could I have gotten that elsewhere? Maybe. But not all in one place, and not in the same kind of well-researched, long-form pieces. And probably not with uh, the same kind of attitude allowing for some benefit of the doubt and considering problems with your own arguments along the way. But I'll miss you, and I can't wait to hear more about what you'll be doing next. Thank you, and good luck. My name is John, and online I go by the pseudonym Counterapologist. I wanted to take a minute to talk about what the Reasonable Doubts podcast meant to me. I grew up as an evangelical Christian, and I remained one till, until I was about 28 years old. Around then, I started deconverting, and after becoming an atheist, I tried to convince myself Christianity was true because of my family's belief. I tried to do this by diving into apologetics. Eventually, that project failed, and I was left accepting that I was an atheist. I had lost the entire worldview I'd absorbed via osmosis growing up in an evangelical Christian culture bubble. I was left with a lot of questions and a lingering interest in philosophy that I didn't have before I dove into apologetics. That was about when I found the Reasonable Doubts podcast. The podcast couldn't have been more targeted to the kind of thing I needed at that point in my life. It was a perfect blend of education and entertainment that captivated me. The podcast acted as a necessary grounding wire for what I was going through existentially, and it helped foster a love of philosophy that I hold to this day. The Doubtcasters even inspired me to try my own hand 
at doing counter-apologetics online. I don't need the show like I used to, but man, every episode that came out was always a cause for excitement, even after a few years of listening. I wanted to thank each Doubtcaster, Jeremy and Justin, for excellent philosophy and counter-apologetic segments. Luke, for using psychology to demystify religion and provide more compelling explanations of religious phenomena. And finally, Dave, for his hilarious polyatheism segments and for being the one to ask the right questions when the other guys got a little bit too technical. You each clearly put a lot of time and effort into putting out a great podcast, and you did it for free. It meant a lot to me personally, and I'm grateful for all of your hard work. Thank you. And if you're at work, it's entirely appropriate to say, God doesn't exist. See you next Monday. Ah, sorry. Uh, sorry. Sorry, guys. Sorry. Okay, what's the number? Which is just fucking bizarre. Just fucking bizarre. Just fucking bizarre. Just fucking bizarre. In the church of uh, Star Wars and Yoda, do, do all the nerds like uh, to have their services like sitting around eating Doritos? Is that their Eucharist? Yeah, I'm not sure what they do. Um, I think you have to build your own lightsaber, which um, seems like a pain in the ass. But unfortunately, if if you're a Jedi, every few years you have to remake your entire religion so that it's less good than the original. <laughs> Sam, people oh. hate them so much. <laughs> I think that was uh, what Jesse and the Rippers turned to. Wasn't it Jesse and the Meat Puppets? Full House fans? Anyone? Okay, right in. Uh, um, full House Cricket reference? <laughs> no <Wow>. way. <laughs> I, Not in I, my I'm podcast. So, <laughs> I, I nerded this so much further. <laughs> John Stamos is banned in Full House. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, well let's turn now to polyatheism. Previously in polyatheism, I began recounting the Mesopotamian creation story known as the Enuma Elish. But since this is the last episode, rather than finishing up that story, I thought I'd talk about something else instead. If you're interested, uh, I guess read the Enuma Elish, because it's good. It's fun. There's lots of interesting... Just read it, if you care. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, <laughs> whatever. I like the you're Enuma fine. Elish. I do, too. I it's, great. it's great. It's wonderful. I highly recommend it. Better better brush up on all your Mesopotamian history before ISIS burns oh, all the books God. or bombs oh, all way the to sites. Bum us out. Yeah. I, this this stuff hurts my my heart so much to see these ancient temples eradicated to see especially cuz it's not like people are still worshipping those gods like right. they're not obliterating a religion they are obliterating history. Yeah. Oh. Well, and the yeah and and that's the wealth of their nation Absolutely. Too. They're going to be ugh, the yeah, tourism. It's yeah. If they actually do blow up Egypt and all of its uh, tourist sites you're destroying Egypt's economy but mm, yeah. oh gosh that, that I'll spiral into depression if we talk about that too much further. So instead, today we're going to talk about uh, the most enigmatic, the most slippery and protean god of them all. I, I mean, other than Proteus, right? Because, I mean, that would technically... Anyway, today we're talking about my favorite, Loki. More than just the only interesting villain in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and yeah, I, I love those movies, but come on, the villains have been so weak. They're all just, their goals are evil. 
That's it. Loki was pretty good. Loki's great. Loki's yeah. fantastic. Tom Hiddleston. <laughs> Yummy. Um, <laughs> Loki is, uh, beyond that, in many ways, the crucial figure in all of Norse mythology. He is the crux upon which the axis of Ragnarok turns, and yet we have a really difficult time pinning down much of anything about him. He's the son of two giants, or Jotun, uh, Farbauti and Lofi, who, by the way, Lofi is his mother, not his father, as the Thor movies would have you believe. Uh, he's often counted not only amongst the gods, but as one of the closest companions of both Odin and Thor. The Allfather himself has sworn never to drink without sharing that drink with Loki. And if scholars are correct in understanding the occasionally mentioned Lopt or Lothar as alternative names for Loki, then Loki joins Odin in bringing life to the first two humans. He gives us heat or hair or goodly hue, depending on which translation you're looking at. I don't know how all of those things can translate the same <laughs> way, but, uh, you know, I don't speak ancient Icelandic, so what do I know? Uh, he's known as Thor's friend, the blood brother of Odin, as well as the Lysmith, the Sly One, the God of a Thousand Masks, the Father of Monsters, and the Mother of Witches, because even Loki's sex is changeable. He fathers the earth-encircling serpent Midgar Serpent, the Odin-eating wolf Fenrir, the goddess Hel, and is the mother to the greatest of all horses, Odin's eight-legged steed, Slipnir. <laughs> Slipnir, what a cool and name. And also, apparently, witches, uh, which is something that may have happened in a story that may or may not have ever actually existed, wherein Loki lives on Earth as a woman and or cow for eight years. It sounds like if they just had something they didn't know what to do with, they're just like, oh, Loki. Exactly. That's, that's totally, yes. He's like the empty box in the room that he just chucks shit <laughs> You in are 100% no right. There are so many referenced stories about Loki that don't actually exist in any other form. So, huh. you know, it, was he a cow for eight years? That time would that he Loki be considered, in mythological context, would he be considered a trickster god oh, rather than evil itself? He is or? quite literally, his name is synonymous with the word trickster, as we see when there is a trickster giant who appears named Utgarda Loki. Literally, the name is outsider Utgard, outsider trickster. Because remember how on the show we talked about Satan used to be basically kind of like yeah. amongst mm -hmm. the gods, not mm -hmm. really evil anti-god incarnate. Yep. And then he gradually over time shifted as an antipode to Exactly anti, so. You know. And in fact, early Christians connected Loki with Lucifer. Oh. Lucifer, they would call him in, uh, in Scandinavia. And he is... Definitely a trickster in that sometimes he's helpful and sometimes he's destructive depending on how the mood strikes him. He helps Thor recover his stolen hammer by disguising both Thor and himself as women. And then later on he causes the death of Baldur the Beautiful and single-handedly prevents him from leaving Helheim, thus ensuring that the ultimate doom of the gods is as inevitable as Donald Trump saying something terrible every time he opens his mouth. Loki has been known... They're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid pig. Uh, Loki has been known to become a horse, an old woman, a salmon, a seal, a bird, a fly, and a troll, amongst others. He's a skilled magician and rhetorician, as well as being a renowned speed eater. Uh, yeah, 
because why not? Speedy, speedy that's but, awesome. But Loki's most notable skill is his ability to get himself into and back out of trouble. There are more stories of Loki's hijinks than you can shake a stick at, including him shaking a stick at a giant eagle, which eventually leads to his own torture and the near death of all of the gods. But today, we'll just focus on one uh, special one in particular. I just want to interrupt real quick. Yeah. You just explained it now. If he's an amphetamine junkie, that explains all the activity. <laughs> like, there you go. How else do you get around uh, that much stuff? Yeah. Except being a speed eater. <laughs> exactly. So him and Joey Chestnut, tricksters. He's a hot dog eating contest, Joey Chestnut. Anyway. Oh, he's here. Chinese Chinese kid. Down. Yeah. Your reference. He there. beat uh, Kobayashi is all I'm saying. Oh, he beat the skinny uh, – Which – Yeah, I mean even Captain Kirk couldn't really beat Kobayashi. Wait, you guys follow so hot, hot dog eating contests? What's that? You guys follow hot dog eating contests like well, you guys are talking about you, the ad- It's pop culture. The Nathan's tiny. Hot Dog Eating Contest is the one sporting event each year that I watch. Okay. It happens on the 4th of these, July like, and it's the yeah. best. Because I didn't know this was a thing that people follow. You guys are like talking about like the oh, athletes yeah. that you, get, like, you guys yeah. have their cards or something at home. Oh, I'm, I'm trying to explain it. why they are cool. <laughs> because it's, it's like the people who always win it are these like 90-pound soaking wet w- – People yeah. who you don't it's the expandability think, like, of the stomach has got yeah. nothing to do with they're their like, like their singularities <laughs> down in their throat somewhere <laughs> that they're just dumping these hot dogs mm-hmm. into other universes from. Yeah. And Great <laughs> sci-fi short story, by the way. That is awesome. <laughs> and, and Loki would fit in great there. Um, but this story begins when Loki thought it would be fun to cut off all of the hair of Sif, who happens to be the wife of Thor. Now, not surprisingly, Thor did not find it very funny. As Snorri Sturluson, the man who gives us many of our myths, Snorri. He's the best. Uh, he recounts Thor, quote, grabbed hold of Loki and would have broken every bone in his body had Loki not sworn to find a way to get the dwarves to make hair from gold for Sif. So Loki goes and seeks out the sons of Ivaldi, uh, some of the greatest craftsmen known to dwarf kind. Of course, dwarves. By the way, not necessarily short. That's not a thing. They never say they're short. Um, what? Yeah, that's a that's a Tolkien thing. Uh, so they're just like a different. Breed they're just of a different something? race. Just like huh. to blow your mind even further, giants. Not necessarily giant. What? Like Loki himself, his parents are giants, but he's they're at least above the average, no, right? Not necessarily. Because well, then I hate mythology. The oh, gods man. inter mate with giants all the time. So there's clear – it's not like Odin Ah. climbing inside a giant – I'm doing hand motions that you're Mm -hmm. lucky you can't see. But, you know, they're clearly compatible in their uh, sizes and dwarves as well. So it's like were they once small and once big and it's just through all the intermixing? They're like mm, kind of – No, I think it's it's because dwarves generally don't repopulate with gods. Like even – like – they, they're not going to have sex with dwarves. But that gets us into the story of Alvis and Thor and all sorts of fun dwarves. Alvis and Thor? Alvis, all-wise. He's the name of a dwarf, and Thor. his name is all-wise, and Thor outwits him. Okay? Unbelievable. <laughs> Right. I was actually disappointed that there wasn't some like interesting like genetic issue going on in these yeah, <laughs> like yeah. some See, kind of forethought. That's my theory, but uh, more on that some other I, time. I, I just think it's your atheism. That's where this ends up. All relative <laughs> giants and dwarves are the same. You liberals it, with yep. your mm-hmm. there, except dwarves don't like the sun. Apparently, that's the difference. Um, 
So he takes this stuff to these dwarves who are some of the best craftsmen of all dwarves. And dwarves are, of course, the best craftsmen of them all. And not only did they fashion golden hair that would grow like normal hair, but they also made Odin's peerless spear, Gungnir. Peerless spear. Gungnir. Peerless spear. Is that his version of Excalibur? Uh, it's that? like his Excalibur? It's, it's like his Excalibur, except it's a spear. And a ship, eventually given to the fertility god Freyr, which is so enormous that it could hold all of the gods and all of their accoutrements, yet... It was able to be folded up and carried around in a pocket. What was his Mind name? Mind blown. Um, uh, Skinbaldi or something like that. Skinbaldi. Skinblandy. Blandy, I think it is. Anyway. Um, it's because he wasn't because they never saw the sun. That's yeah, exactly. So Loki, uh, with the help of the sons of Ivaldi, has more than made up for his misguided prank. But why stop when you're ahead? So Loki takes these three amazing items and brings them to these other true dwarves uh, named Brock and Eitri. Loki bet these dwarves, Brock and Eitri, that they could not make three items that were better than the ones that had been made by the sons of Ivaldi. So you can't do it. They're the most luxurious items ever. <laughs> he was so sure, China. in fact, that they couldn't <laughs> succeed that he bet his own head in the bargain. <laughs> Mistake. Mm, you think? Brock and Eitri set to work, uh, first crafting a golden boar. And to ensure that he would win the bargain, Loki turned himself into a fly and bit Brock's hand as he was pumping the bellows. But Brock continued his work unabated. Next, they crafted a gold ring, uh, despite being bit on the neck by that same fly uh, during... The process, the ring turned out perfect. Finally, they began making a war hammer, and Loki the fly stepped it up a notch and bit Brock right between the eyes, so that blood clouded Brock's vision and he accidentally broke off most of the handle of the hammer. Now, Loki, Brock, and Eitri went to Asgard and presented the items to Odin, Thor, and Freyr, who would act as judges. Loki extolled the virtues of the golden hair, the spear, and the magic boat. The gods were very impressed. Then, Brock and Eitri presented their golden boar to Freyr, the golden ring to Odin, and last but not least, the stubby-handled Mjolnir to Thor. Despite the slight deficiency of the hammer, the gods unanimously agreed that the objects made by Brock and Eitri were superior to those made by the sons of Evaldi, and thus Loki's head was forfeit. Like a good, brave Norse warrior, Loki turned and ran the hell out of there. <laughs> the dwarves tried to tackle him, but with no success, so they sent Thor after him, and of course Thor you know, did his thing and, and grabbed Loki and dragged him back, kicking and screaming. Then, as Brock sharpened his knife to remove Loki's head, Loki came up with an idea. I promised you my head, he said, but I said nothing about my neck. If you can remove my head without doing any harm to my neck, it's yours. And this is, this is one of those fuzzy beard arguments, right? Like, where does the head start and the neck begin? Oh. I thought it was going to be like one of those cool, like, uh, puzzles where you have to twist it just <laughs> right. And then, like, Loki. there we go, did it. 
Well, it's less subtle than that. Yeah, yeah. So, huh. of course, it's impossible to cut off the head without damaging the neck, so the gods ruled that the dwarves would be unable to claim their prize. But, as a consolation gift, Brock took a leather strap and sewed Loki's mouth shut. Thus, the nice. trickster wins, but does not come out unscathed. From that point on, he is often referred to as Scar Mouth, because even after he took the stitching out, he still had scars around his mouth. Uh, and this whole thing with Loki surviving but not coming out unscathed is a common theme with him. In one of the most entertaining poems of the poetic Edda, the Locusena, one of the few poems, by the way, named after a major character. Odin is the only other major character to get po poems named after him. Here, the wrangling of Loki. Loki shows up at a party the gods are having, and after being kicked out for inexplicably killing a servant, because <laughs> he, yeah. he doesn't like servants speaking their minds, <laughs> That's is just what it comes rude, down to, right? Really. Yeah. He comes back, they let him back in, and then he calls out all of the gods on their bullshit. Uh, some of which may be entirely made up by Go Loki. Go home, Loki, you're drunk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what this sounds like. Yeah, uh, too much mead. <laughs> but nonetheless, it's highly entertaining. And it is a result of this, this haranguing of the gods and not his more evil deeds, such as the death of Baldur, that result in Loki's ultimate imprisonment, wherein he is tied up by the intestines of one of his own sons. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, until dark. he breaks free for Ragnarok, only to be killed and to kill Heimdall, the Watchman of the Gods. So what have we all learned? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, now, there's a novel called uh, Ragnarok, The End of the Gods, and it's by uh, A.S. Byant. And she describes Loki in part like this. Quote, he was beautiful. That was always affirmed. But his beauty was hard to fix or to see, for he was always glimmering, flickering, melting, mixing. He was the shape of a shapeless flame. He was the eddying thread of, a needle, of needle shapes in the shapeless mass of the waterfall. He was the invisible wind that hurried the clouds in billows and ribbons. You could see a bare tree in the skyline bent by the wind, holding up twisted branches and bent twigs, and suddenly its formless form would resolve itself into that of the trickster. End quote. So Loki is... I don't know what that means. Oh, um, <laughs> Try reading the whole book, because uh, it's described as lyrical, which means it sounds pretty and doesn't make any damn sense. Um, but she has some real interesting things to say about the gods. Anyway, uh, there you have it. Loki, the outsider on the inside, the Jotun among gods, the sly one, the trickster of tricksters, and just one more god worth not believing in. This is Dan Finca. I just want to say that Reasonable Doubts was the best podcast I have ever heard and may ever hear. It was a huge honor and a dream come true to actually be able to appear on the show. And I want to sincerely apologize to all Reasonable Doubts fans for being such a good guest on the show that my episode was the last they ever recorded before deciding to throw in the towel, realizing that they could just never top my appearance. I'm so sorry. You will now have to read my Camels with Hammers blog and attend my philosophy classes to continue to learn atheistic philosophy in their absence. You'll be missed, guys. Hello, Doubtcasters. This is Chris from Lansing, Michigan. Thank you for all of those Reasonable Doubt podcasts. Some of those podcasts are absolutely classic. 
Most importantly for me was watching the 100th episode live from the studio, knowing that the birthday bourbon would not go to waste. Hey folks at Reasonable Doubts, I couldn't possibly have gotten to where I am today without the support and information that your podcast offered. I'm deeply sad to see you leave. Thank you for everything that you've done. Hi, this is Aaron from Kalamazoo. Reasonable Doubts was essential in helping me define my own religious perspective and has been a valuable resource for critical thinking and skepticism. As an atheist and a native of Southwest Michigan, thank you, Jeremy, Dave, Justin, and Luke, for all the work you've done over the past few years. I look forward to seeing what you come up with in the future. This is Dan in Massachusetts. I grew up with 16 years of Catholic school indoctrination and took almost as long to let go of supernatural beliefs. Your podcast helped educate me that doubt is more reasonable. I thank you. Hey guys, uh, it's Melissa from Ocean Springs, Mississippi. I discovered reasonable doubts during a very dark period of my life. I struggled with the problem of evil through personal tragedies over the course of many years and found my once strong and blind faith hanging by a thread. I didn't know how to articulate my thoughts and felt I had nowhere to turn since doubting was sinful in my parents' version of faith. I listened regularly for a couple of years, catching up on every episode at first, then listening week by week. I felt so intellectually fed that I would daily re-listen over and over again. The three-part series on mindfulness greatly affected me and I often refer others to it when they are struggling with emotion regulation and depression. Quote, the glass is not half empty or half full, there are four ounces of water in an eight ounce glass, unquote, has become one of my many mantras. This new knowledge was expanded upon through the recommended books from the podcast and referenced studies. I did let go of my faith completely during that time, and although I have found faith again in a new, balanced, and purposeful form, I am so thankful for the time I was given to freely search and grow in intellect. I credit reasonable doubts for this 100%. Jeremy, Luke, Dave, and Justin presented an intellectual honesty like no other, quick to prove their points without ad hominem or name-calling, which is so very rare. While staying true to their convictions, they empathized with the religious respectfully, however calling them out when their faith did not follow the same empathy and respect. I recommend that every Christian listen to this podcast, not only so that they are forced to face what they believe and ask themselves the questions they are afraid to ask, but so they can experience intellectually honest debaters and know that the word atheist is not a scary concept, for many don't even understand what that means. I've sort of become the ambassador in my church between believer and non-believer and have based the curriculum of a class I've been asked to teach, along with the regular her hermeneutics and apologetics classes, on terror management theory and determinism, in order to challenge Christians to explore not only the reasons for their belief, but to recognize when they act in fear and emotion instead of intellect and empathy. Although I'm sure the reasonable doubters are bummed that Melissa Sippy has gone back to the dark side, they can be assured that one more person, because of their hard work and labor throughout the years, made the intellectual search for truth that many people avoid. I'm going to miss you guys, but I know that you will continue your good work off the air. Although reasonable doubts will no longer be current, it will still be active through the earbuds of budding atheists and confused Christians around the world for many years to come. Thank you.
right. So, this is our final episode. I suppose it's time for us to have our our closing arguments. Uh, final thoughts? Anyone? Justin, did you have some? Um, not not much. Okay, uh, <laughs> all right, fair enough. So, no, no I just just that. Uh, I mean, this has been a, an, an incredible learning experience uh, for me personally, uh, both kind of uh, intellectually and uh, personally in the sense of you know uh, getting over you know certain kind of self doubt you have. You know what I mean? And uh, like for example, when I was first asked to join this show. Um, I was a huge fan of the show for for obviously uh, you know at least a couple of years beforehand, and and I thought oh this will never work like this will <laughs> like I'm gonna drag the show down but I'm really glad I did it because I learned so much and uh, and um, yeah I mean I'm 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 very happy with what we've done. Yeah, I I have to say that this. The collective effort of this podcast, the hundred some episodes we've accumulated, I, I'm very proud of this. This is one of the things I'm most proud of having been involved in um, over the years. And mm-hmm. uh, quite frankly, getting into the studio today uh, with you guys, I, I'm going to miss this. This mm-hmm. is yeah. really fun. Like I know people enjoy listening to it, and I'm I'm glad for that because otherwise we're uh, there's no point to do it, but um, this is this has been good times, and yeah. uh, it's been a long time. It has been a long time, <laughs> like it's <laughs> astonishingly long. Uh, yeah, I I I probably should have figured out before we came here how long it's been. It's, oh, I hang think on, it's, I've got the I have the original date. Uh, it was October of two thousand six, two thousand seven. October nineteenth yeah. of okay. two thousand seven was wow. when our first yeah. episode was posted. So Jeez. it has been eight years. Yeah, that's, that's and bizarre. you know it's we don't we have like only you know for other podcasts that have been yeah. around that they have like hundreds and hundreds right. of episodes. But even though we have you know, I think we maybe averaged ten or twelve a year if, if you that, look at yes. the entire span. Yeah. Um, my gosh, there was just a ton of information mm-hmm. we went through. Yeah. I was trying to organize. I was trying to do the task of listening through the older episodes and making up an index mm. so that people yeah, I tried wanted that once to too, learn. Back when we were at a much lower number, and it was yeah. a task. And it and it just really quickly hit me like, wow, we've covered a ton of ground in mm-hmm. in these eight years, and that's. To be honest, uh, that's that's part of why I wanted to quit the show is. Um, we've covered so much that to cover anything more has required a massive research project <laughs> each time around. And um, uh, I don't know. For me, uh, uh, maybe closing comments or thoughts, um, this was originally going to be nothing more than um, we wanted to do a, a local show. A lot of us had knowledge. We had all gone through religious backgrounds and we had all changed our minds and I think all of us felt a kind of uh, anger towards the way uh, some um, some religious people kind of manipulate and fight for converts mm. and sometimes twist facts in science uh, uh, or philosophy or other realms to 
to fit their religious agenda. And uh, um, we just got together putting together a podcast and didn't think anything would really come of it necessarily. And uh, at our peak, we had about 40,000 subscribers to this show. I remember I was at a a music festival and I was – I was able to quantify in my mind because I knew exactly that the lot I was looking at, I was looking down at it from a Ferris wheel. I knew this is 40,000 people and I was able to see that. Wow. And it was hmm. it was strange to think like – It's crazy that you got them all in that one place. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> well, <laughs> it was – No, but I was able to see like – Luke what, wasn't there but everyone else. What 40,000 people yeah, right. would look like, right. you know. Uh, and But, you know, you're thinking like around the world and we've gotten some – Emails from we've gotten emails from people in Iran who have to listen to the show in secret. Yeah, we've had people in the in the middle of the uh, um, Arctic. The yeah, on we've had people in the middle of the ocean on Mm. oil rigs. Yeah, dangling their legs off the side. We've had people email us saying they're they're walking through you know ruins in ancient Greece. With their earbuds on, listening to the show, <laughs> or jumping into it, into the sky out of an what, airplane. It still amazes me. It's weird me to think just as much what? to hear that oh, yeah, there are people. The parachuter. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, that's not even a joke. There are <laughs> there are people in Grand Rapids who are listening who don't know us personally, but right. there are people in this area who have been listening to the show for for years, mm-hmm. and it's it's weird to me to think that people are out there hearing this little thing that. Is just four of us sitting in front of microphones. Yeah, and I just want to say that uh, we've gotten so much awesome feedback from fans. We've gotten letters over the years uh, where people have just – we don't know unless you tell us. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's my one complaint. Maybe I'll start with before complimenting <laughs> the fans. Complain no, I got a beef because oh, this I has happened it. several times. We're not like celebrities, uh, inter- even even not internet even celebrities. The, yeah, we're not even Vine yeah. famous. We're we not are... even atheist internet celebrities. No. But some people seem to think we are. This is this happened to me yeah. several times where I'd be like talking to somebody. I'm like, so uh, what do you do? Oh, I listen to a lot of podcasts and stuff. I'm like, oh, cool. What what are some of your favorites? Well, yours, of course. I'm like. Jesus Christ, we've been talking for an hour and a half and you didn't, you know, which is unfair. You have a leg up. You already know much about me. But yeah, that has happened so many times and and, uh, even in Grand Rapids here. I was at a party the other night and that happened and it's just like, you know, we're really – we're all – we're four really lonely individuals. You could totally come up and say hi. Just like email us yeah. and say, hey, I'm in the so area. Yeah, you want to be friends? It would make my day. This but, is adding on the saddest note yeah, ever. I know. <laughs> so that's why we're do- that's why we're doing this. It's just you guys are jerks. Yeah. If you're not going to talk on. to us. We're not going to talk to you. Um, no, but uh, anyways, with that little beef out of the way, I just wanted to say the, the feedback we have gotten is amazing. Mm-hmm. I cannot believe that this show was a part of people's lives. Yeah. And we don't deserve that. Yeah. No, it, no. And, and, and we have legitimately gotten emails that have made me cry because people mm-hmm. are so – because for a lot of people out there listening, um, this is – their chance to hear people talking about this stuff. Right. Um, but we're providing a, a service for people, and it's really easy to forget that. Um, but when we hear from those people who really needed this, it, uh, it it's humbling. 
and uh, kind of terrifying because yeah, very terrifying. It is this level of responsibility that we're really not equipped to. Oh Take God! I hope you've been fact-checking us over the <laughs> oh, years. Yeah. If you believe what you are on the show, <laughs> well, here's my final thought. This has to do with the pr- process rather than the content. So mm-hmm. you know, we've Jeremy. This podcast originated in kind of the mind of Jeremy and Dave, and I was asked. I was brought on board after that thing. I, I don't think I can take credit for that. I think. Well, okay. In fact, I Jeremy. came up to Jeremy after a, a meeting when I was starting to beginning to start a college group and he had said the word podcast and I was like, I listen to podcasts. Can I do a podcast? I want to do a podcast. And that was basically (laughs) it. I really And the response was pretty much like, yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Because Jeremy mentioned that all of us had formerly been religious, quite religious. You know, in fact, I'm, you know, you guys were probably more religious than I, and that um, we had beefs about the way, perhaps some resentment about some of the tactics that were used or maybe in retrospect looking back and saying that that ought not have, you know, dishonesty maybe, mm-hmm. intellectual. And that's one thing I that, for example, if you look at Jeremy, what triggers a lot of his counter-apologetics is a, a, a calling BS on intellectual dishonesty. Yeah. And that's what – so when I think about what gets us out of bed and we go down on the podcast and why do we spend hours doing that, is it just about counter this, counter that and anti-religion and things like that? Yeah. I think it's – well, my final thing is it can't be just about what we're against yeah. uh, and what mm-hmm. we're – but the process by which you dissect things like that is a positive thing. In other words, the acid by which you dissolve bullshit and intellectual dishonesty is also – you can hang your hat upon a process to build something positive out of that. What is mm-hmm. worth believing in? Mm-hmm. What is a way to discern the truth from the not truth? Mm-hmm. And so I think if we t- have a takeaway message – it's not just that we debunked this argument or that we showed this psychological thing to be not true or it's just your secular – it's just your brain. But it's also – that that method in itself is what I hope listeners apply in their own lives about how to discern what's true or not. Yeah. Uh, you, can, you can use philosophy and, and psychology and science and mythology to discern – the next time you see something, I don't know about that, you can use that to discern what is true. And so it's not just – I guess my th- summary is it's not just anti this or that. It's enable, it enables you to discern what's actually left standing and then right. what valid that you can build so that this is true because it withstands these arguments. I, I think that's part of how I've grown the most over doing this. And a mm-hmm. lot of it comes from the psych information that you you brought to stuff was – I think there was a bit of my holdover fundamentalism still active when we first started this show in that I really wanted trophies as far as like taken heads of (laughs) apologists, not literally, um, but I wanted to clobber those bad arguments. And um, what you you said about it being kind of a a positive thing, these same same methods build truth instead of just tearing down falsehood – um, one thing we came to see over and over again from all the psych stuff is that it's not all ideological. So much of what we believe is for – I don't know if I would have said at the beginning of the show that I thought, oh, if you just have the right point of view, you know, you'll be a good person or if you just have the right intellectual methods, you'll believe the right things. Uh, I don't think I would have been dumb enough to say that but there was some part of me that believed it. <laughs> And after going through this, you know, we've come to see there's so much that goes into what you believe in, who you are, and and mm-hmm. doing good. And a lot of it has to do with 
the communities that we're a part of, the the activities we think in, and that in turn really reinforces some positive uh, qualities of thought. And so I don't know. So at some point for me during doing the podcast, the, the anger and the aggression that motivated or the need for revenge that motivated mm. the podcast maybe <laughs> in, in the early years really started getting ironed out and – I don't know. To to me, the whole scene now, uh, it, it seems more about instilling a certain set of intellectual virtues and methods yeah, that absolutely. we want to do it's, and it's building much. communities and, yeah. and uh, making good uh, change. And, uh, and I can do that with religious people. I can do that with non-religious people um, as long as we're committed to a certain um, – right. yeah. It's, it's about standing up for the correct way to think, not the correct things – Right, and and it's interesting to me that we never had a discussion about our mission statement or the tone we were going to take or anything. And uh, credit to you guys because the show, I think, became from the get go uh, was this thing that um, there are hundreds of atheist podcasts out there, and there wasn't a lot of people doing what we were doing. Um, we and I, I'm sorry, patting ourselves on the back here, but um, I do. Think We're right to f- be feel proud of what we but do. Yeah. <laughs> I think that we have a. I think what you're saying is that we have a reputation of being uh, especially fair-minded. And Not lowest common denominator, although even when we are, yeah. it's still we're. N- Generally, the rule I try to abide by is not to attack people, but to attack ideas. Now. Certain people are fair game when they are. Uh, uh, we've attacked a lot of. We've people. attacked plenty of people. <laughs> it does, no, but it, it's respectful because they take their yeah. arguments at face value. Right, we right. Don't just tell right. like, what are a stupid thing to say? Yeah. But you, re- if you really believe this, we started that as a yeah. premise, and that respecting yeah. their views. If you believe that this argument is valid, and then we start to dismantle it. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. think that's. That's yeah. a, a low blow. I don't think that's disrespectful. And, and I think uh, uh, we've been pretty good about pointing out hypocrisy not only amongst religious people but also in our own group. Yeah. And Didn't always win us friends. But no. I'm really no. looking back, I'm glad we did it. And, and that that to me is, is one of the things I'm most proud of about this podcast is that we were willing to say, look, this guy's – wrong he's being an asshole and and one of the things i've learned i think when we started i was very like excited about being able to do interviews and meet people mm-hmm. and some of the people we met through interviews i still dearly love yeah. and i think they're fantastic um Ed Brayton has been on this show almost as often as oh, we gosh. have. I would have never thought that would have turned into yeah. the relationship that it did. And, uh, and Ed is fantastic. Mm-hmm. We've also had – I was just looking through the list of episodes. We've also had a lot of people who um, turned out not to be perfect, um, <laughs> who yeah. have uh, – there's, there's a I, lot of, within our movement. There is – a lot of bad stuff, um, especially with the way – I'm sorry, I'm going to say it – the way we treat oh, women and, oh, oh, okay. and minorities and, um, and also the way we treat religious people a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. I, I cannot stand behind atheists who delight in people getting shot at a church because they were at a church. They shouldn't well, have been there. Oh, my God. And, and that's 
Or the, or the burning down of churches. Or the burning well, down well, of churches. Not all bad. The other thing. corollary of the fact that all of us used to be religious is a lot of our family members of all of us are still religious. Are still religious. Right. And so yes. every time that we've been going on here saying we don't like the way that you know being lied to and things like that, there's always – people have to remember that we still have loved ones who are religious. We love so, our moms and grandmas and yeah. – you know, and, and, and so that, that's a, there's always been that, that implied like uh, we used to be this and that. If we were that insulting about – about just being religious and things like that, we bought it for most of our adult lives. Yeah, absolutely. And mm-hmm. our family members still buy it. So yep. uh, how insulting could we possibly be yeah. about that? But nonetheless, obviously, we think that there are things, or waves of thinking that are more valid than others that need to be, you know, yeah. but correcting I, things. I think we done good, guys. Yeah, I, I really I think do. So. I think we did something valuable. And uh, I want to, because I don't get a chance to do this, I'm on a microphone now. I want to thank Jeremy personally uh, because I, I, there's no reason why anyone would know this, but the two jobs that kept me and my family alive for the better part of a decade were the direct result of Jeremy basically handing them to me for no real reason but just saying, thank you. It really uh, – <laughs> Thank you for that. Day. Sorry. If it's been oh we're we're uh, we're I know, I'm sorry <laughs> we're bringing this in, in, yeah, yeah final no. episode we no, gotta do this you. but yeah. no I, it it means a lot and you guys have all been um, a huge help uh, over the years and um, I love you guys oh god um, <laughs> but uh, no I really do I I value you guys and I thank you for everything and. This last year has been a real hard one, personally. I know for me, I know for Jeremy, um, and uh, it's just it's the community that this show has built, and more than that, for me, the philosophy and the way of thinking that I've, I've grown in because of this show have made it much easier to get through the horrible shit you know yeah and uh so thank you and and to our listeners thank you and uh we love you too although you know ask before you hug us so. <laughs> <laughs> and i i'll give my uh, consent to hugs uh, ahead of time just just come up and hug. But, um yeah thank you dave and uh for for saying that and i i mean i feel the same way about everybody too i mean David and I uh, sometimes got into some real heated conflicts, yeah. uh, 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 you know, behind the scenes. Listeners call look for details, <laughs> but I kept a transcript. Yeah, but he, but I mean, he still cracked me up. Like, like there are just several. I'm always like telling stories about like the epic thing that Dave said, you know, totally out of the blue that caught somebody off guard. You had a really good way of just uh, – you had, like we're dead or something. <laughs> well, you have, here's the thing. You have a you, – yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a bomb in the studio. <laughs> um, this really is our last show, guys. Um, Going out with a bang. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you, you had that ability to really just kind of cut the shit every once in a while and, and, and get down to it. And, uh, and Luke, I mean, besides just having an incredible – uh, sense of humor, that psychology of religion angle, just in as far as popularizing, nobody's doing it. Yeah. 
so much of what Luke introduced and just not just sharing it with us, but like sending us the studies behind the scenes and encouraging us to dig deeper really, really dramatically changed the way I've I've looked at the world. Like I mm-hmm. – I'm, I'm sometimes afraid of what would have happened if we didn't start doing this show because I learned so many things from that process. And then Justin coming in as like the little kid who's supposed to replace me <laughs> in my mind and then end up like taking his philosophy of religion stuff deeper than I ever dared to and and – and becoming like turning the, a heads. breakout star. Yeah. yeah. Like having people like, you know, Paul Draper or others yeah. uh, uh, take notice. I mean, that's been amazing and inspiring to watch that happen. So, yeah. Um, thank you guys, too. And, uh, and of course, Justin, you've still got uh, plenty of stuff going on, right? Are you still doing personal appearances, debates? Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm uh, doing, yeah, uh, speaking in debates, and I've got a. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've got a YouTube channel, uh, Real Atheology, where I'll be uh, kind of, you know, doing more of the philosophy of religion stuff. Excellent. I've I've seen a, a little clip. I haven't gotten to watch too many of them yet, but I uh, I was pretty blown away from what I've seen already. And uh, he's I, like George, who had a double albums worth of material that he released <laughs> after this. <laughs> and and then Jeremy's yeah. gonna go out. He's gonna be like John and have all this creative stuff that was too edgy. But I'm oh, gonna be like God wings. Say Paul. <laughs> yeah, wings was pretty. I'm solid. like the wings of the like you know. They had some pretty sol- – and, and no, no, that leaves me Let's as, face it. I'm Ringo. That leaves me as Ringo. <laughs> I'm Ringo. So one of us is Ringo and uh, I've got the nose for hey, it. Hey, Ringo's um, a survivor. <laughs> yeah, sure. He'll be the last alive. Um, but uh, no and, and of course, certainly folks, we are all still around. Jeremy's uh, got an ebook coming out. Luke's got every publication coming out. Yeah, uh, Justin is very active online. I've got – Hopefully, one of these days, I've got a, a couple of books in the works, which uh, you know we'll try to let people know about as those uh, become actual things that you can possess. But uh, we're around. You can still email doubtcast at gmail dot com mm-hmm. if you want to get a hold of any of us. And uh, you know, who knows? Maybe someday we'll do a reunion tour. Um, when the need arises, like Tom Joad, wherever I'll be there. people are suffering. Whenever you stare we'll into an impenetrable philosophical argument, I'll you, be there. Justin's got a YouTube channel. Uh, if, if we could ever convince Luke to get in front of a camera, uh, <laughs> you know, there might be. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm and, definitely uh, – when, when Would Luke's... you wear a burqa or something for it? I mean, that <laughs> They would... wouldn't know it was me. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, we, we are still around, and certainly, please, folks, um, as you are uh, going off uh, and you have questions, you have ideas, uh, send them to us. We're still happy to talk about this stuff. We've been talking about this stuff for years. It's kind of what we do, and uh, we'll still have our Facebook page, and we'll – I don't know how active it will be, but it will certainly be the way to find out if and when – uh, publications and that sort of thing are coming out from mm-hmm. us. So, um, and, and Loa, we will be with you always, even to the end of the age. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to the internet. What a perfect <laughs> blasphemous note to end on. And uh, so that's it. Thank you for listening. This has been Reasonable Doubt, your skeptical guide to religion. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. So long. Thanks for all the fish. <laughs> Thank you.
I'm happy just to be a member of the human race Floating through the universe, a point in time and space Born in singularity, this galaxy is fine for me Nothing here that worries me at all I comprise of elements from deep and distant stars Same as those found in the sun or Jupiter or Mars Nothing more and nothing less than Einstein's quantum weirdness Nothing metaphysical at all I'm still grappling with the questions I'd rather take my chances Like Schrodinger's cat Before the big inflation There was quantum fluctuation And no one knows what happened before that I don't need God or Jesus Christ To get me through my day I prefer the questions to the answers anyway And all those robed and bearded men Scarring children's hearts and then Selling them salvation for their sins Sin is when you break the rules they make to keep you down Who you sleep with, who you love if you are white or brown so filled with hate Standing God at heaven's gate Ain't it great to live the Christian life I'll need the answers I'm still grappling with the questions I'd rather take my chances Like Schrodinger's cat Before the big inflation There was quantum fluctuation and no one knows what happened before that If I was there at the final sunrise I'd stand on the edge of the void and die Greetings from Seoul, South Korea. I just wanted to say I've been listening to the show since around 2010. It was one of the first resources I found after losing my faith, and I didn't really know any atheists at the time, and I can't tell you how much it meant to have voices like yours in my life to help me process the things I was going through and also to learn to think about life and religion in a way that I feel has been very constructive and has made me a better thinker and a, in some ways a better person. You guys were really like friends to me when I needed friends really badly, so I'm going to miss you guys a lot and uh, wish you all the best. Simple forms and bits of DNA 
Self-replicating chemicals all happen in one day. Two steps forward, one step back, constantly under attack. Darwinian competitors, another nasty predators. And when the universe grows tired and terminally old, heat death comes to everyone and it is dark and cold. An absolutely zero Kelvin rules the kingdom come And everyone that ever lived or breathed will be long gone A bit depressing if you think about it for too long I'll need the answers, I'm still grappling with the questions I'd rather take my chances like shooting a cat Before the big inflation There was quantum fluctuation And no one knows what happened before that I'll need the answers I'm still grappling with the questions I'd rather take my chances Like Schrodinger's cat The galaxies will fly apart Cold and dead like at the start And nothing else will happen after that Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all the listeners who contributed to this episode. And also to Hugh McDonald, who performed the music in this episode. You can check out more of his work at hughmcdonald.com. Our archive of episodes will still be available at doubtcast.org, and the podcast feed will still be active with reposts of some of our best segments, updates on the Doubtcaster's other projects, and who knows, maybe a surprise or two from time to time. Thanks again. It's been a privilege.